Hi, I'm Mark Caro, and welcome to episode 119 of Caro Pop, sponsored by Revolution Brewing. It's time for part two of our conversation with XTC bassist, songwriter, and singer Colin Molding. XTC was slumping commercially in the mid-1980s when its record company dispatched the band to Woodstock, New York to work with producer Todd Rundgren while living on the premises. The experience was an unusual one that Molding describes here, with heightened tensions between Rundgren and XTC's lead singer-songwriter Andy Partridge. Rundgren chose the album's songs and running order, including five Molding contributions. Grass by Molding was released as the first single, and the album Skylarking turned out to be a career highlight. I love that album. Oranges and Lemons, the bright-sounding 1989 follow-up, featured another single from Molding, King for a Day. The band performed it on Late Night with David Letterman for its first onstage performance in seven years. Subsequent albums, None Such, Apple Venus Volume 1, and Wasp Star, Apple Venus Volume 2, Molding showcased himself further as a keen observer of everyday life minutiae. It's such later songs of which he is most proud. Just talk about some trivial things we like. A bit of this and that. Molding tells how financial issues plagued the making of Apple Venus Volume 1 and Wasp Star and precipitated Dave Gregory's departure from the band. How did Molding feel about XCC continuing with just him and Partridge? What were the issues that finally tore those two apart and spelled the end of XTC? What role did the late River Phoenix play in getting Molding to work on Sam Phillips' great record, Martinis and Bikinis? How did Molding reunite years later with original XTC drummer Terry Chambers for the TCNI EP and a series of live performances in Swindon? Which song from that project does he consider to be his best ever? Scatter me far and wide Why didn't he want to take TC and I on the road? How did he come to record a solo single, The Hardest Battle? Now that all four XTC members live in Swindon, do they ever see each other? When is the last time all four of them were in a room together? Will they ever share a stage or studio again? Please enjoy part two of this Pop conversation with Colin Moldy. You sort of had what you called your last chance where you went and recorded with Todd Rundgren to make Skylarking. How much of the 25 o'clock experience carried over into that? Because certainly Skylarking for an XTC album was sort of the most sort of 60s kind of influenced record, even though obviously it was still XTC. Well, it had a number of different song, different types of song on there. But, you know, it was Todd that chose the songs. Andy and I sent our demos over to Todd, and a week later he he cut it together. And he said, "I got a running order for you guys." What? You know, we usually do a bunch of songs and we see which turn out best. That was the way we usually work. But he uh, he cut all these songs together and he said, "This is what we're going to be doing." You know, and it was like, "Whoa!" You know, <laughs> I'm sure red flags went off in Andy's mind definitely. Um, well, because you had five songs on that record. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I had five songs. And he he told us what the running order. And essentially, when we got to Woodstock or Bearsville, we started on track one, side one. And, you know, it's it's very direct way of working. Um, but that was what we did. And when the um, Summer's Cauldron goes into grass, we actually stopped playing. So grass could take over. It was a bizarre way of working, but uh, I think he got the whole album on two reels, you know, uh, side one, side two. There you go, fellas. And um, it was very direct and very you know, almost honest way of working, you know. And um, it was the strangest three months of my life, I think, you know. Um, we went to his place at uh, it's called Mink Hollow, a lot of people would recognize that name from one of his albums, I think. Right. Just in the hills above Bearsville, right in the middle of the Catskills. You know, it was real fur trapping country, really. And um, 
his assistant picked us up from the airport. We had three hour drive right the way up to Bearsville, got there in the middle of the night and uh, checked into our room. Uh, he put us up in the guest house. Todd had a house built for himself up on the hill and we were down lower near the river. Um, real New England type house with veranda, the whole rocking chair thing, you know, mm -hmm. it was what it was. One of those type of old houses, real frontier house, you know. And few, he was away at the World's Fair, I remember, in Vancouver. And, and uh, we didn't see him for a week, so we just mubbed about the house for a while. And, hmm. uh, you know, with not really much to do for a week until he uh, he appeared one day and, uh, you know, and um, showed us around the place, you know. Uh, but, yeah, it was strange because... We didn't actually record much when we were there initially. It wasn't until we went to San Francisco because uh, Todd said, well, I want you to play some bass. I said, well, no drums, you know. Yeah, I was going to say, it's just the three of you without, without a drummer, right? Yeah. And uh, he wanted me to play to just to a click. And I thought, oh, Christ, you know, we're not going to, where, where is he going to put his foot? You know, I need to be on the foot. And uh, he said, well, well, all right then. So essentially for those first few weeks, we just booked tape space and a click really uh, for about two or three weeks. Uh, and, and then we went to San Francisco and we worked at the Tube Studio, which was called the Sound Hole, I think, and near the docks at, uh, in San Francisco and uh, in an old warehouse, I think. And uh, that's essentially where we rehearsed because we hadn't rehearsed up until then. I didn't know the chords to half of these songs because I, uh, you know, Andy had said, well, you know, we don't even know what he's going to choose. So what, what can we rehearse? You know, so essentially, you know, we had to learn the songs while we were out there and then record them more or less straight away, you know. Um, so yeah, that was the, that was the way it started. And you the uh, tubes. The Tube's drummer, uh, Prairie Prince, was the one in San Francisco, so that's why you were out there. Yes, that's principally why we were working at the Tube studio, because Prairie, obviously, his involvement with the Tubes and and him actually has been selected to actually drum on the record. I think Todd chose him. He said, you'll be happy with him. He's he's really good. And he was, you know, no doubt about it. He was a great drummer and, uh, you know, picked it up real, real easy. Uh Probably more so than what we did, really. But uh, um, yeah, so it all happened really in San Francisco. We did the majority of the album there, and then obviously came back to Woodstock to do overdubs. And Todd was left to mix it. Really, uh, he didn't want Andy around for the mixing. <laughs> no, no, go home. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say on, on the drumming thing that I would think of anyone in the band that would be especially tricky for you because you know you and the drummer are the rhythm section and uh you know you're being asked to sort of put on bass parts before you have that drum and then you have to actually you know work with the drummer and i mean and i was also you were working with a lot of different drummers like did it just become more challenging in those years just because of these different recording approaches and different drummers for you as the bassist to sort of lock in on that well, I like to rehearse because, you know, the more you rehearse, the more you can go outside the boundaries. You know, yeah, we've got that in the pocket. Let's see what we can do now, you know. Uh, so, yes, I would have liked more rehearsal, certainly with Prairie. Uh, but, you know, circumstances, it wouldn't allow, allow us to, you know, get more acquainted with the songs, really. Uh, so we were rehearsing and then we were more or less recording straight away, you know, not, it's not ideal, but you know, it turned out really good anyway, but, uh, yeah, it was tougher, really much prefer to kind of know what I'm doing to begin with. You didn't sort of come in all Paul McCartney, like afterwards and say, oh, I'm going to put a new baseline on this now. No, Todd wouldn't allow you to, you know, I think when most we did was two takes, you know, and, and you'd say to him, you know. I remember there was a key keyboard part on that's really super super girl that's right on that particular track and Todd was playing keyboards on that and uh, he was kind of feeling it out and all the rest of it and then put, was pressing the record on the machine and then putting it down you know and Andy Andy said to him right that's the keyboard part there let's do it for real and Todd said it's done <laughs> 
<laughs> and uh, he never went back and did it again. He said, no, it's done. That's it. Forget it. It's in the pocket, you know. And uh, Andy was most put out about that. He was used to seven takes, you know. Uh, but, uh, you know, Todd was a one or two take man. No, you're the two take. The second take is the one, you know. You start going further on than that, and then you're going to get out of out of the pocket, you know. And then, to a certain extent, I've learned that he's probably right. Yeah, but I was anyway. going to say, did, did Andy have some different idea for what he thought the keyboard part would sound like, or was it just that it was so quick? He was like, wait a minute, it can't be done yet. No, I think it was because it was so quick. It had to be due, given its due, and he felt that it hadn't been because it was done so quickly. But in a way, it was the take, you know? Um I think uh, it's a job. I think what we'd have done is another silly black thing from uh, where you do 20 odd takes and you end up using the second take, right? You know, it was one of them. Um, that's the way he liked to work. And to a certain extent, he was right. It, very often it is the second take that's in the pocket and then you go further out. You know, right. when you, but, you know, at that time, Andy liked his pound of flesh, you know? When people are recalling those sessions, they often talk about, you know, Andy and Todd butting heads. Was it an artistic thing, a personality thing, or both? Artistic thing and personality, both, really. Andy and my room were together at the guest house, but I, he, we, we could talk to each other through the wall because the walls were quite thin. Mm. Our bedrooms, you know? And he would say, I'm really not enjoying this, man. I'm really not enjoying it, you know. And... Um, uh, principally because, you know, that, that Todd was calling the shots and Andy had always been used to calling the shots. And that's why in the old fashioned sense, like a George Martin type figure, Todd was, you know, and we never really had that, you know, Andy was always kind of had a finger in the pie, really, in, in regard to the production, you know, and he is a knowledgeable guy, you know, but sometimes, you know, it hasn't always delivered probably the album that the record company wanted, you know. And uh, you've got to remember that we'd done two albums and they hadn't been successful, and therefore they wanted someone to take over the reins, I think. And Todd was their man, really. Well, it's interesting because Skylarking was such a you know successful album and also like a wonderful record, but it's not, it's not sort of wonderful in the way that you think of albums that were coming out in late 1986 sounded like it doesn't sound particularly of that era. It's, it's its own thing, but there's something so well realized about it that it sort of popped out, but it also did boost you guys commercially. Yeah. He wasn't that type of producer that he, well, he went for an album that he thought would hold together. Well, I think, it wasn't the kind of, oh, let's have a hit, you know? It wasn't that. He, he's so much more than that, I think. He uh, went for the songs. Well, he wanted to make an album which had... He wanted to call the album Day Passes. That was his idea. Right. As, you know, we all kind of scratched heads on that one because he wanted the feeling that the album would st start in the morning and go through to the evening and then the dawn and the dusk, you know. Right, like Days of Future Past. Like, it's yeah. almost the same title and same concept. Exactly. Yeah, the passing of a day, really. Yeah, and that was what he wanted to do. And he chose the songs accordingly to that, really. Uh, which I think it succeeded. You know, it uh, it was a concept that, that, that was realized, I think. Well, and then you also had one of these, you know, phenomena from from back in that era that is less easy to do in the in the internet age, where you had the single where the the actual human DJs were flipping over the record and playing "Dear God," and you know, to the extent that that record was pulled and that album was the song was added back to the album, um, was that yeah. part of the original? You know, Todd's when he, when Todd sort of originally mapped out that record was "Dear God" part of the order. Because it, it sounds was. like it when it comes right after dying. Now. Yes, it or, was. Goes, it goes into dying. I'm sorry. Yes, it does, and it was in Todd's original running order, but it was Andy who wanted to take it off, and we all kind of scratched our eyes. What do you mean, take it off? It's one of the best songs on the record. What are we taking it off for? You know. But Andy, by that time, had persuaded the record company that he'd come up with a better song called "Another Satellite." Um, and uh, he wanted to 
to do it, and he got the record company involved. So Cobb, Todd was compromised at that point. Huh. He had to go along with what the record company wanted, uh, but it was not on his original running order. You know, um, he included Dear God in particular. Um course and then it got put onto the b-side of grass which went to radio and it, and it, in the college uh, campuses they began to turn it over and was playing dear god and um, we really got hooked on it and it became a campus hit you know um so that's that's the story behind that but it was in todd's original running order right and then they and they pulled off mermaid smiled and left on another satellite when they re-released it and I was glad yeah. when they finally put out a version with both songs because I hated losing Mermaid Smiled from that record. Yeah, yeah, I did. I, I did. I thought I had real atmosphere and uh, about being by the seaside as a kid, you know. And um, so, yeah, that was one of my regrets as well. But, you know. I, and uh, actually, you can see that Another Satellite kind of fits that concept less than the other songs. Like if Todd was sort of programming it in that day's past way, Another Satellite is a bit of an outlier there. Yeah, I thought it was just sounded a bit too futuristic. I, I didn't really think it, it fitted that well, you know. Uh, but I think by that time that the animosity between Todd and uh, Andy had got so bad that I think Andy felt that he was getting one up on Todd. That was my feeling about it. And uh, to get the record company on his side. The side with him. Yeah, to, and for Todd to be overruled, I think he... He felt that that was a, a feather in his cap, you know. And that lasted a few months. <laughs> and then and then they pulled the record and put Dear God right. back on it. So, Yeah. Yeah, it was reinstated. But, yeah. But, but by that time, CDs were coming in, so it all became a little bit academic anyway. So, yeah. Yeah, a pretty unfortunate episode. But, yeah. I mean, to be to be fair to Todd, it was, it was on the record and was intended to be on the record, you know. Was there any blowback from the record company when, you know, you have this, you know, kind of breakthrough record with Skylarking, you've got an American hit to, you know, did they want you to get back in the studio and do an XTC record as opposed to doing another Dukes record? Or was it just like, it, it doesn't really matter, just do your Dukes record and then do, you know, Oranges and Lemons? Well, I think they were pleased that the fact that we had, we, we at last had a, a, an American uh, career, you know, first and foremost. It was a big hit around the campuses and was played on the radio and, you know, and it, it was released as a single in England because of it. And uh, so, yeah, we, we were forging a career for ourselves in America. And obviously, the what with oranges and lemons in our sights now, we were able to have a bit of money put behind us, you know, which for a couple of albums we hadn't really. Right. And you recorded that one in America also. Yeah, the feeling was, well, you know, let's go with an American producer as well, you know, but it wasn't going to be Todd, I knew that. <laughs> right. Paul Fox produced that, but was that more sort of Andy and the band kind of taking control of the sessions yeah, a little more? Yeah, and it was business as usual, I think, after that. I think I think Paul wanted to impress Andy and uh, get the right side of him because he'd heard the bad experiences that he'd had with Todd. So he... He wanted to come on board as someone who, who was Andy's friend and not uh, not go against him too much, you know, which I don't think is necessarily a good idea, you know. Got to have your own way of doing things, you know. Um, so, yeah, I think he wanted to please Andy and, and uh, got on, get on his side, really. Yeah, and uh, you had... Uh... You know, it's a very bright record. It's a lot of energy on that. Another drummer. Yeah. You guys have re-released so much, so many of these records. Do you go back to them and sort of rehear them, and you know, sort of reassess what you thought of them? You know, with the distance of, you know, these re-releases. Yeah, I don't get involved with that. I got my own thoughts on that. Um, I think it's great that the five point one surrounds are coming out because that's another format, and people want that. You know. Uh, but if you ask me to compare uh, the previous stereo analog compared to the digital, the jury's out on that one. I think. Are the are the new vinyl editions? Are those digital versions of them? I think they are. Yes, yes. Uh, but the 
there was that thing with Skylarkin about this cross polarization or something. Right. Don't run away with the idea that I'm against the reissues. I'm not. You know, they're, they're a good package. Um, but I'm talking like for like in right. regard to stereo versions. The 5.1 is brilliant because although I don't have a 5.1 surround system, I know a lot of people who do and really enjoy those records in that format, you know. So that's all to the good. Carol Pop is supported by Revolution Brewing, Illinois' largest independent brewery. If you're winding down on dry January or you just want something unique, tasty, and non-alcoholic to drink, Revolution has created an excellent beer alternative. Super Zero is a sparkling hop water that delivers the citrusy hop flavor that you'd expect from the makers of the best-selling anti-hero IPA. Not only does Super Zero contain no alcohol, but there are also no calories, carbohydrates, or sugars. It's available in six packs at stores and on RevBrew.com. A King for a Day, that's another, you know, hit that you wrote. Um, Mayor of Simpleton got a lot of airplay also. Um, yeah, yeah. And, and you did your little acoustic tour, which is where we came in, because that's when I saw you guys. Uh, and I have, a, I have a recording also of when you guys were in Chicago doing WXRT as well. Was that a good time for you? Like, was it, you, you know, do you, and do you feel like you did what you wanted to do? About eight months, eight months in the Los Angeles sunshine, you know, so... <laughs> it was a good time. And uh, the families came over and, uh, yeah, we stopped in an apartment complex. And, uh, yeah, it was great making uh, – it was great because you didn't leave your family at home. And it was, you know, they were uh, – I could go home and have dinner with my, my wife and my kids. You know, that was, what was that was great. So, uh, yeah, I enjoyed the making process, certainly, yeah. And uh, they were a great bunch to work with, Ed Thacker. Um, twiddling the knobs and uh, Paul, who's sadly no longer with us. He died last year, but right, I saw that. I was surprised. Yeah, but yeah, they were a great team, and we had lots of laughs. You know, we did it at a place called Suma, which was on Hollywood. I think where Coenga crosses Hollywood. I think. And so, what is your status in England at this point? When Orange is the Lemons, were they were were you getting listened to there, or was it really like you were the more of your audience was in the U.S. now? I think more in the US, you know, I think we've been largely forgotten in England. You know, we were a band of the early 80s, I think. And uh, occasionally you'd hear it on the radio, perhaps Mayor Simpleton. I didn't hear King for a day, I don't think, but I'd certainly heard Mayor, Mayor Simpleton for a while. Uh, I'm not sure how well it did. Maybe it made top 40, I'm not sure. But uh, yeah, I, there was a feeling that the career was in America there, certainly. There was a feeling that we were has beens, I think, <laughs> in the in the UK, you know, a band from the early eighties, Nigel and Senses and stuff, you know. People remembered them, but they didn't the newer ones they couldn't place, I don't think. No, there was a feeling that, you know, our career was definitely in the States at the at that time, I think. So you, you were talking early on about how you would sort of come in and play a song on acoustic guitar and the band would all sort of figure out how it sounded and that's where the magic happened. Um, by the time you're doing Oranges and Lemons and then None Such is the next record, was it still that process or because you had those four tracks and you could make the demos, was it a little bit less of an organic, uh, you know, sort of collaborative process at that point? Yeah, it was less. It was more kind of what the writer had intended on the demo, really. I remember uh, when we did the bass on Mayor Simpleton, Andy came to me and said, could you play the riff? This was the riff that was on his demo in the verses. And he said, if you play the riff, uh, you can have a free hand with the rest. There was an element that you could have a free hand, but there were certain riffs that needed to be played, you know? I think with the bass on Mayor Simpleton, I played his riff in the verses, uh, and as delightful as the riff is, and it's wonderful, it goes well with the guitar part, but it was still a lot to do. So, yeah, it was 
the joining up of the guitar parts with those scales and and stuff. So yeah, there was a bit to do. That is one. Yeah. Of the, that is one of your busier parts. Yeah, it was pretty fast to play, and you know, yeah, it was a bit frustrating at times. But yeah, it was a bit of a beast. Uh, but yeah, there was still a lot to do on it, and uh, yeah, it turned out really well. And Ed had my wall bass just in the mix perfectly, you know. And uh, yeah, so yeah, there were elements that you had to play because the writer wanted to hear certain things. But uh, yeah, there was still a bit to do, you know. Would you guys sort of suggest to each other, like, was that a frequent thing where you'd say, oh, I'd like you to play this part. Um, I'd like you to, you know, this is this is what I want you doing on this record. You know, it's already sort of set. Yeah. I mean, even with my stuff, I'd play the riff and one of the guys would have to play the riff, you know, like the meeting place and uh, the guitar parts on Nonsuch. They were, you know, wake up or something, you know, there was the, I had that on my demo. So, you know, you wanted them to play it, you know. So yeah, there was a feeling that you know, there's still a bit for the for the for the musician to do, but there were certain riffs that the writer would want you to play, you know. Right. We have a whole conversation about the meeting place. That's actually one of my favorite songs, and I love the sort of the way the percussion kind of links up with everything else in that one. Yeah, that kind of horses trot at the beginning. Yeah. Right. Oh, Todd's Fairlight. He had a Fairlight with all these sounds in, you know. Uh, so that was that was kind of good and uh going back to skylark and there was the finger clicking at the start of the man who sailed around his soul right it was a competition between all who had the best finger click and uh it was me that had the best finger click so that you're hearing my finger click oh nice i think it was entered into the fairlight and uh processed a buggery i suppose yeah so, so at some point there could be like a, you know, a, a expanded edition of Skylarking with the bonus track where you hear David's finger click, you know, and then you hear Andy's <laughs> finger click and Todd's finger click and you have four different tracks just to see if you could tell the difference. Well, Todd was the adjudicator over the finger click. Yeah, I don't think he did one, but he was in the control room. Uh, right, Colin, it's your turn. You get in there and do your click. Andy, okay. Yeah, you know, and uh Yeah. And then Andy got mad that his finger click wasn't taken, and that was the rest of the day was shot. I'm not saying anything. <laughs> so we're getting like into Nonsuch, and then you know it'll be the Apple Venus Rip Records. But how much was your songwriting changing um, in terms of kind of what you wanted to write about, and maybe the way you were writing? Um, did do you feel like you were sort of getting interested in different ways of expressing things or different things to express at that point? A bit more of the minutiae of life, I suppose. Certainly in term, in terms of tracks like Dying uh, and Bungalow as well on uh, right. on such, you know. They were kind of oddities. That's my speciality, oddities, really. Um, but yeah, I... I consider my songwriting 90% failures, you know, but I live for the 10% because you've got to take risks and chances, you know. 90% uh, failures, like you don't like 90% of your songs? Um, well, the thing is, I'm seduced by melody. That's the thing. I'm seduced by melody. But just because you come up with a good melody, it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be a good song, you know. Um, I think there's 10% where I would stick my hand up and say, yes, those songs are going to last. Whereas some of the others won't, you know. Um, from So from that perspective, the, that kind of everlasting thing, they're going to be failures. But uh, I don't mind. I'm used to failures. That's from the old days. Because, you know, if you shoot from the hip, you're going to fail. You know, yeah. you might come up with something fantastic, you know. Yeah. So uh, failure, you're being pretty hard on yourself, though. I would not call those songs failures. What are the what are the ones that you consider failures, and then what are the ones that you would stick your hand up and say, okay, this one's this one will be good for the end till the end of time. Um, the ones that I'm most proud of is probably oh stuff like uh, frivolous tonight, bungalow, dying stuff that's slightly off the wall i think and i think my best song is probably the, the 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 two songs that i wrote or the songs that i wrote for tc and i after i left the band 
I think that that's probably my best stuff. I think Scatter Me. Scatter Me. I'm just going to ask about that one. My best song ever, I think. Um, And uh, Hardest Battle and stuff, you know. But, um, yeah, failures. Well, I don't know. Uh, Grass. I don't know whether it's much good. It's kind of melodic. But I don't know whether it's tip top song, you know. I like perfect. It's perfect on that record. It's perfect on where grass on goes, record. goes right. into summer's cauldron, into grass, into the meeting place is like one of the fantastic starts of any album. So I'll, I'm going to stand up for grass and I love the sound of it. And right. it's just a small song. It's like, it, you know. Yeah. Yeah. It's a little vignette, really. I'll go along with your, your uh, description then. You were about to, you were about to say bad things about Big Day also. No, no. But I think Big Day is one of the ones I'm most proud of, you know. Oh, okay. Yeah, about marriage as an institution, and you've got to be careful, you know, about, uh, you know, about your son comes to you and says, hey, I'm going to get married, Dad, you know. But you've got to be careful, son, you know, you, you know, there's implications here, you know. So, uh, yeah, that's what that's about. I think that's a good subject matter. Yeah, I'm, I'm quite pleased with that one. I'm glad you pulled out Bungalow also. It's a great little sort of odd song toward the end of... Uh... None such is really good sound to it, and I don't know. That's that that one. I think um, artistically, I think it's one of my better ones. Using those diminished chords in the way that they do, they they happen is I think is quite new. Um, and about your parents' idea of of uh, a blissful end in their retirement. They retire to the sea in a bungalow and stuff. And certainly my parents had that ideal in their heads, you know, didn't actually materialize. But yeah, I, I, I'm kind of proud of that, really. But it's the minutiae ones, which I'm, I think I'm most proud of, you know. Yeah, there's definitely this reflective quality in those later songs of yours. You know that they're not going to be big songs, but but you know that you should finish them and do them, you know, and they will be enjoyed. Um but you know that they're not going to be big hit songs, you know, just by virtue of uh, the content, chiefly. Uh, the way they're arranged and stuff, you know they're not going to be big hit songs, but you still want to do them. See, I think one of the best songs that the Beach Boys ever did was a song called Little Bird. Oh, I love that song. Yeah. The I Dennis think, song. Yeah, I think Dennis sang it. I'm not sure who composed it whether it was uh, Brian Wilson or whatever, but um, I think he's got his stamp on it, but uh, I don't know. Perhaps perhaps the listeners will know, you know. It's like, it's like two minutes long. I just love, love the changes in it and the way it goes from one thing to another in that. I think it's superb, yeah. I think it's the best thing the Beach Boys ever did, apart from God only knows, of course, and good vibrations. <laughs> right. <laughs> when... In these, so like none such Apple Venus Wasp Wasp Star. Do you feel like you and Andy were sort of in sync artistically in terms of what you wanted these, you know, XTC records to sound like and what you wanted them to do and how your songs fit together? I think Andy wanted to record too much, and that's why it, it more or less put us on the verge of bankruptcy. Really, uh, in the end, we ended up finishing the records up at my place. You know. Uh, that's why Dave left, because he was worried about the finances, I think. And uh, Andy wanted to record everything. I suppose he thought, well, this is the last chance. This may well be the last XTC record, and I want to get everything out there that I possibly can, you know. But, you know, with that, when you're recording so much material, it costs money, you know, to record. And uh, that was what the problem was, is that Andy wanted to record too much material. Uh, in the end, we kind of did this thing whereby um, we divided the material up, but that wasn't until, that wasn't until David left. So maybe he left for nothing. I don't know. Um, I think his idea that we should choose an album uh, from the songs and we should record that and, you know, lock it in time and that's what we're going to do. Um, back to Todd, I suppose, in that respect, you know. Yeah, it was unfortunate the way it ended, you know. Um, we carried on for a bit, but, you know, I, I think Andy felt that he was a spent force by that time and and uh, 
wanted to wrap it up. I just wish you'd have told me and we could have wrapped it up earlier, you know. There were one or two. I, I think I'd wrote Say It for the for the album, which was going to be on the forthcoming XTC record that never was, you know. Right. But it was kind of sad that the way it ended with Dave, really, uh, because he he wanted to ring fence uh, an album and for us to do it. And uh, we could have done it, but at the time we were just recording everything, recording the backing track to everything, you know. And, of course, Hayden Bendel kind of resigned because I, he said, I can't really spend any more time. He was the producer. Can't really spend any more time on the record, fellas, because I've got to do another record with somebody else. So, you know, then we ended up getting Nick Davis in. But by that time, we formulated a plan whereby we would record some of the more acoustic ones and some of the more orchestral ones and finish those off first. That would be Apple Venus Volume 1. Right. And the heavier ones we could do the following year. Uh, personally, I felt the better songs were on the first one. And uh, I remember having a conversation with Andy. Uh I say, look, why don't we take six months off and write some more material and try and make the second one stronger? That was my feeling about it. But he was adamant, oh, no, no, we were okay, you know, it'll be it'll be fine, you know. But that's my opinion on it. I think it was number one was stronger than number two. Yeah, I think a lot of people feel that way, honestly. Yeah. Um, I think Wasps are is a little more uneven, and Apple Venus Volume 1 is wonderful. So None Such was 92. And yeah. wasn't there some legal thing with the record company? Because it was seven years before Apple Venus, because Apple Venus Volume 1 was 99. Um, and I remember like just constantly, like, where's the next XCC record? And I would sort of hear, and I knew people in like, you know, the music business here, and they're like, oh, I've heard demos and it's fantastic. And like years before it came out, and it just seemed like there was this really yeah. protracted period, gestational period for those two records, as it turned out. Well, Andy had said to the record company, we're not making another record for you until you up the ante. I mean, essentially, we were on the same royalty rate that we were, we were on in 1977, you know. And it was a bum rate and there was packaging deductions and, you know, it all served to to make your, your cut minuscule, you know. Uh, so he said to the to Virgin, no, we're not going to uh, make another record with you and, unless we get a better deal. <laughs> Consequently, we didn't work for years, you know. So um, in the end, they said they agreed to let us go. That was the upshot of it. I think '97. I think we uh, we got permission to that we could tear it up and and go if we wanted to, and and we were out into the independent world, you know, which is a bit chilly, I'll tell you. you know? Right. Virgin for an awful long time and. In my consider, I, I consider that our years with Virgin were, were very good, you know, although we did have a, a bum deal and they could have upped the ante. Uh, but um, we signed some contracts with other companies, uh, TBT in America and uh, Pony Canyon, I think, in, um, yeah, in uh, Japan. It was uh, cooking vinyl in, uh, in the UK. But um, I don't know. I don't know whether they really got behind the record, to be honest. Uh, so I don't know. It was a kind of a bit of a topsy-turvy time for us, really. Yeah. How, how big of a blow was it to lose Dave during those sessions? It was a hell of a blow. Yeah. I, You know, there was talk that he was going to go on the road with Blondie or something. And I think he turned it down because he was going to carry on with us. But Maybe he should have took it. I don't know. But uh, uh, it was terrible. You know, there was a big, when we were working at Chipping Norton, there was a big outburst from Andy, you, you know, that people weren't pulling their weight and stuff, you know. I don't know whether that was directed at Dave. I don't know. But it, a few weeks later, uh, Dave just chucked in the towel. Uh, but I think we were scheduled to do some orchestral uh, work at Abbey Road, which was going to cost about 15,000 quid for one day. You know, it was a colossal amount of money. Uh, and we were going to do the Green Man, uh, all the strings on the Green Man and, uh, oh, all the orchestral ones. I can't own her and stuff and the brass on, um, 
uh, frivolous tonight, you know. It was going to be a complete day of orchestral instruments, you know. And it was costing an arm and a leg, which we did, really didn't have. We were running out of money. And uh, because we didn't have a plan of what we were going to record, it was so open-ended that I think Dave, uh, it was the last straw for Dave, you know. And uh, so he, he said that was it, walked out, you know, that was it. So, I mean, yeah. I was going to say, Andy's released so many of his demos, and it seems like a lot of those songs he was he was arranging to such an extent that I'm wondering if there was also a sense that there was, there was sort of less room for everyone else in what he was doing. Yes, I think there was. I think when somebody comes to you and say, this is how it's going to be, this is how I want it, can you do it? I think, well, why don't you do it then, you know? Uh, you know, what's there to me to think about? You know, I'm just playing your parts, you know. So there was certainly a bit of that, I think, yeah. I think uh, Andy had got so exacting about what he wanted. There was no room for manoeuvre, you know. Uh, and when that happens, what is in what is there for the musician to do, you know. Uh, so, yeah, I think there was a bit of that as well. But did you still think, you know, oh, well, you know, Andy and I will carry on as XTC. We'll be like Steely Dan, you know, the two of us, the songwriters, and then, you know, we'll we'll fill it out, but we'll continue for, you know, more albums after, you know, Wasps are? It felt strange, to be honest. The three that had been together for so many years, it felt really strange. I almost felt as though I was Andy's adversary, to be honest. Uh, and I didn't know... I, to me, I think he had it in his mind that this would be the last. But I just wish he'd have told me, you know, and uh, I could have, you know, drew a line under it and and perhaps formulated ideas in my head. But uh, I come up with one or two songs for the the album that never was. So one of them was "Say It," definitely, and it, and he liked that. But you know, he had one or two ideas as as well. But I don't know. I just got the impression he was holding back, you know. Um, so there wasn't like a breakup announcement or anything. It was more just at some point he said, oh, yeah, we're done. Or how did that happen? Oh, well, we kind of just drifted, you know. And uh, there was a argument about the studio because the studio remained empty for, for years, we, you know, that we'd... Basically, if I could tell the story, um, when we were doing Oranges and Lemons and David left, we put our own money in to buy some equipment and we were finished the first Oranges and Lemons project with Nick Davis up in my living room. Can you believe it? Apple Venus. So, Apple Venus, sorry. Yeah, I beg your pardon. Apple Venus, Apple Volume 1, we finished at my house, in the house. We just took over the whole house the passageways and the two rooms at the front and a big Victorian house. And uh, that's where we finished it. And, uh, you know, Nick Davis had been engaged to mix it down at Rockfield. Uh, but that was essentially, and uh, then the two of them had ideas to actually uh, do the second project in my garage, um, which I wasn't, which basically I, I just had my car and a few gardening tools in there at the, at the time. And so they said, well, why don't we convert it, you know? And then there was this thing, you know, we converted it into a, a studio of sorts. And that's where we recorded the second Apple Venus project. Uh, but where we fell out was uh, basically um, five years went by and nothing happened. And by that time, you know, my kids had left home and I wanted to move house. And uh, we fell out over them over the what the actual company had put in into the garage which became mm. the studio. Right. What pay back, you know, and I thought, blimey, I've saved the band all this money. Um and uh we couldn't decide about what I was going to pay. So I I didn't realise that I was going to have to pay anything. But um it was pointed out by our, our accountants that uh that my garage had been deemed a company asset. Uh so I thought, oh, my God, my good intentions have got me in the shite here. Uh, uh, so um, in the end, to cut a long story short, the Inland Revenue or the HMRC is the tax people in the UK. 
they had to intervene and they told me what I had to play. So I had to pay a shite load of money back to the company, uh, which was going to be dissolved anyway when the band split up. So that was the way it was. So it didn't finish very amicably, you know. Mm. So, but, so yeah. really, so really became like a financial dispute in the end, not an artistic one. Yes, not a, not an artistic one. No, I think I'd long given up on the artistic one that it wasn't going to happen, you know. But it was just how the how the loose ends were going to be tied up financially, you know. And but you know, by volunteering my garage as being the venue for the for the studio to do the the final album, Wasp Star. I inadvertently kind of got myself in a bit of financial huh. mess, basically. So yeah, it didn't. I wasn't too pleased about that, but you know. And so it ended, and we had a couple of years where we didn't speak, and uh, yeah, and yeah, it got back on course. You know, I think we were all be prepared to bury the hatchet and and get on with it, really. Because the years have been so good, what can you do? You know, you can't right. just with the volume of work that we've worked on together, you know, it'd just be foolish to kind of let that incident mar everything else, you know. Right. So all four of you are, of you are in Swindon now, right? Uh, yeah. Yeah, pretty much round and about, yes. And he has this place in Brighton as well. Uh, but he's kept his house in, in Swindon as well and... and I think he flits between the two, you know. Uh, Dave's still, yeah, where he was, and uh, I'm pretty much still where I am, just outside Swindon in one of the villages, you know. I'm going up towards the horse, the white horse. So I'm there you go. Yeah, yeah so. And, and so and Terry moved back from Australia, and, and you guys did the TCNI EP and played a show together, um, showed yeah. some shows together, and... Uh, how is that, first of all, just, you know, like deciding to, you know, do a side, you know, do a new project with, with Terry, who you hadn't played with since, you know, 1982, three? I know. Uh, it was the weirdest time because he came back from uh, to attend a wedding and he never went back, basically. He got divorced and uh, hitched up with his old girlfriend uh, from 40 years previous. And uh, he got divorced and basically... He was living in the UK and it happened virtually sort of overnight. And uh, I'd heard that he was, well, first of all, we went out uh, for a drinking session, as you do with Terry. And uh, we ended up at the White Horse Pub, which is at the foot of the White Horse, uh, Uffington. And and uh, we were drinking and having eating pizzas and stuff one late Sunday night. And uh, yeah, Uh and he told me that he was staying here and uh, he'd hit, hitched up with Lynn, his old girlfriend, and they were going to make a go of it again, you know. And so, so he was in the UK to stay. So by that time, I was just started this EP, uh, uh, these tracks that I was going to put out. And I thought, I wonder whether he would, whether he would be interested, you know. And I said, uh, I'm doing this EP. Uh, do you fancy coming in on me, uh, coming in with me on the EP? And he said, well, you yeah, could do, but I don't think he touched a drum kit in about God knows how many years. But, you know, um, anyway, I persuaded him. And uh, so we formed TC&I and did the EP and it turned out really well. You know, it was very unusual. And uh, of course, Terry's thing is playing live and he wanted to play some live shows. And I was kind of intrigued because I had the XTC material, the catalogue my songs and I, I was intrigued to to think how grass and the meeting place would be if we if i played them live you know um uh, and so with terry thought, drumming on him who hadn't drummed on the originals he didn't play on the originals no so there was that to consider plus there was the originals there was stuff like nigel and stuff we could right play. of course i thought we could do some shows but i, I really didn't want to get a promoter involved when you get promoter promoters involved you're in for the duration really uh, so I thought, well, I wouldn't mind dipping my toe in it, but I, I, I don't want to do it on a big scale. So we booked some local places. We booked the Art Centre in Swindon, and, and that's where we, we had a set piece that we were going to play every night, like a residency, you know. And uh, that's what we did for six nights in Swindon. 
Um, but the rub came really because Terry wanted to expand the live operation, basically carry on from where we were in from 1982 with XTC. You know, I said, no, I'm really not into that, Terry, you know, and I didn't want any resentment being set up. So I said, well, perhaps we ought to call it a day then, you know, and uh, leave it there, you know, and that's what we did, you know. But yeah, we're, we're fine with each other. It was just some, it was just a, a different, we had different agendas, you know. Right. Yeah. You, you still wanted to stay closer to home than go out on the road and tour the U.S. I mean, I mean, he's come with the EXTC, he's come to Chicago at least three times. Um, so, because I've seen, I've seen him here and I know he's been back even since the last time I saw him. Um, and that wasn't something that you, you wanted to be like traveling around the U.S., over and over on that stuff, hitting city wineries and clubs and all of that. I really didn't want to tour in the conventional sense of world tours and stuff, you know. Uh, the set piece in Swindon, that may seem like small potatoes to people, but, you know, it was a small club and uh, a small little theatre, and I thought that would be nice to, as a showpiece for what we were doing and for some of the compositions that I'd written for XTC. Um, and that was what, where I wanted to keep it, you know. But he wanted to, oh, yeah, we've got the promoters in Japan interested. And I thought, oh, no, no, I, I'm really not interested in taking it any further, you know. I'd become conditioned, you know. I'd had all those years playing in the studio and I'd become conditioned to working. And I quite liked it, you know. So I said, well, you know, it's really not me, Tar, sorry. So I want to knock it on the head. So I think he was a bit peeved to begin with. But, you know, now he's got his own operation going. I'm sure he's enjoying it a lot more, you know. So uh, fair play to him, you know. Well, one advantage you had is that because he this had grown out of uh, him playing your songs, when, when he was coming over here with the XTC, it was about half your songs and half Andy's songs. And he was playing, I mean, they played Scatter Me and... Uh, they were yeah. stand, standing in for Joe, so you were you were your songs were represented uh, well in that at least. Yeah, I'm grateful for that. Yeah, of course. Yeah, if that's that's what you want to do. Why not? It's there for the taking, you know. But it really wasn't where I wanted to be, you know. Yeah, so. it it is a sign of your modesty that you called that project TC and I. I mean, you could have gone out as Colin Molding, which you did, you know, later when you recorded a song on your own, but. Uh, you know, TC and I was still, you, you know, you kind of like, it's, it's a modest thing to do, I would say. I thought it was about right. There was a, a film in England called uh, With Nail and I. Right. Great movie. Great movie. And um, I kind of got the idea from that, really, I suppose. I thought it was kind of a, a short, it uses the TC from XTC as well. Right. You know? Well, that was an afterthought, really. TC, it was Terry Chambers, you know. Right. That's where the name came from, but I thought it was succinct enough, you know, and it was catchy. So, and still tipped its hat to XTC as well. So, I thought that was about right, you know. Is there a Colin Molding album that's going to happen eventually? Like, you and Andy have both put out all these EPs, and I'm wondering yeah. at some point there's going to be like an album. Uh, well, I can't speak for Andy, of course, but from my point of view, I'm albums take time, you know. <laughs> yeah. And uh, my, at 68, you don't really have the time, you know. So if you get something, you put it out, you know. It, uh, it's um, it's an age thing, I think, you know. If you've got something, just put it out, you know. If I haven't got anything, then you won't hear from me, you know. That's the way I, I work. I'd like to do another EP, you know. It, but the songs have to be top, top whack, you know. I wouldn't really like to slip in, in kind of quality, you know. I think when you've got the XTC catalog, that's something to live up to, you know, so you have to be as good as you can be, you know. Plus, I like doing sessions. I've still not resigned the fact that I'm a musician as well. I started when I was 15 and uh, I wanted to be a professional musician, you know, and I thought, you know, there's that side of me likes to be a jobbing musician as well, you know. So I play bass on people's records and sing and, and and tinker so that there's that side of it as well you know so that's all good right well i you know i i talked to sam phillips a while back and you're on uh martinis and bikinis which is a great album and uh baby i can't please you which has you know i, I think that you co-produced that song too it has this kind of almost yeah like, yeah well i saw hollywood I sort of thing on there yeah i suggested on that track uh 
I said, oh, God, it sounds like an Indian pop song. I mean, that's all I said. I said, you ought to do it as an Indian pop song. And that's all I said. And he ends up giving me a credit, you know. But it's him essentially kind of being the producer, really. T-Bone, you mean? T-Bone, yeah. He, um, I love working with him because he's a real ideas man, you know. Of course, I got that, um, I got that session through River Phoenix. Huh. River Phoenix uh, lived next door to um, uh, T-Bone and Sam Phillips. They were a married couple at the time. And uh, I think they lived next door to River Phoenix in West Hollywood. And I, a few years before, River Phoenix had turned up at the studio while we were working on Oranges and Lemons. And kind of, I thought he was a tramp, you know. <laughs> hmm. This guy with his rucksack, and uh, I asked the engineer. I said, oh, "Who's that?" He said, "Well, that's River Phoenix. He's he's a movie star." Oh, right, right, yeah. Well, I I hadn't heard of him, and um, so he was a big XTC fan, and I think he put my name forward as being to play bass on Sam's record. You know, uh, we did it at uh, Jackson Brown's studio in Santa Monica. So I had a week in the sun back then. You could. You could do that, you know. They didn't request that you did it over the internet. They they wanted you there in person, right? Uh, so um, yeah, it was a good little session to do. But I came in on the Saturday, and everybody had these glum faces, you know. And I uh, I said, well, "What's going on?" He said, "Have you heard?" I said, "Heard what?" He said, "River Phoenix is he died last night at the Viper Rooms." Oh wow! So Christ, he he got me the gig, you know. So that was the story there, you know. Uh, so I, I thought, oh, so I got in my car and drove to the airport, and I thought, oh, just said ta-da to people that they were in another world because they just heard this rotten news, you know. So uh, yeah, mm. do you have like a sort of a collection of songs you've been recording over the years that you're like, yeah, I don't want to release this one, but you know, you're, it's stuff that you're working on. I'm sure all the decent ones are out there, you know. <laughs> I'm sure all the best ones are out there. And uh, no, I, it's the old XTC board that me and Andy bought together. There's only about, uh, I don't know, there's about five or six uh, of the channels that are broke. I just mm. use it because I only need eight, you know, the recording facility that I have. Uh, so, you know, I don't record any more than eight at once anyway. So, yeah. Um, but no, I, you know, I'm sure you'd have, if there had been a masterpiece lying idle somewhere, I'm sure you'd have heard about it. <laughs> do you, do you have like a routine for like a time of the day where maybe you'll sit with a guitar and try to write, or do you practice bass at some point or, you know, do you have any routines around music or is it more just kind of like when you feel like it, you'll, you know, you'll, you'll, you'll play around with stuff. No, in the mornings when I'm still in bed, um, that was how I wrote the uh, the TCNI EP, was in bed, uh, basically with the laptop, um, with the keyboard plugged into the laptop, basically, and I just uh, tinker with the headphones on, you know, um, for chord changes and melodies and stuff, you know. That, that's become a, a format of mine uh, to actually tinker in the mornings and uh in the evenings is recording time really I, um i just played on the scott mickelson thing uh he's an american i think or is he canadian not quite sure i think he's american uh so i played bass on his his record and uh i just finished that around christmas time and uh so i've been um i come in here to principally to record it's too much pressure when you come into the studio to think yeah, you got to come up with something, you know. Whereas I think the greatest, the best ideas are just when you're watching the TV or something, or you know, following a muse that you gleaned from something. Um, so I think that the best stuff comes up in sort of idle times, you know, when uh, you're you've not put pressure on yourself to come up with something. I think if I come into the studio, then I have to record, you know. And I have this little setup out in the garden, so that's when that's when I record. But generally, for for ideas, it's mornings in bed with the laptop and the and the little toy keyboard I've got, you know. 
in terms of you guys all being in Swindon now, like who's who's in touch with whom? Are like are you guys all on speaking terms, or is it pretty much everyone sort of sticks to himself? We were never, even when we were going at full flight together. I don't think we were kind of social chums, you know. Uh, we had families, and so we kept ourselves pretty much to ourselves. And I think that remained, you know, and, and it remains to the to, to today. It's that we don't work with one another now, um, but it still remains that kind of, you know, once in a while contact. And, you know, obviously I've got everybody's email and and we converse, you know, if there's something to converse about, usually about business, you know, money and stuff. Yeah, the checks in the post, all this kind of thing, you know. Right. Um, but, yeah. Have the four of you, like, been in a room together at any point? Well, obviously, what with my dealings with Terry, it's a lot, lot more cordial and because, you know, it wasn't so long ago that we worked together, you know. Right. Um. I, no, no, I haven't seen Andy probably since I left, to come to think of it. I don't think I've even seen him in the street. Mind you, he has this place in Brighton, so he's not in Swindon all of the time. Not that I go into Swindon that much, really. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't think I've seen them, really. Is the last uh, time the four of you together, were together when Terry dropped the walked out on the Love and a Farm Boy's Wages session? Uh, no, no. Um, Terry actually did come over uh, from Australia in 19, when we were doing Nonsuch, and there is a photograph of all to, uh, us together, which I think had re just recently been in the local paper. Uh, so there is a photograph from 1991 of us uh, together at Chipping Norton doing Nonsuch, and Terry looked in. I remember I I picked him up and we drove. He was at his mum and dad's. I. I uh, picked him up and took him up to Chipping Norton, which is only about 30 miles away from Swindon. So, uh, yeah, and then we reacquainted ourselves then, you know. But, uh, yeah, so there there has been contact. Could you envision the four of you ever, you know, either sitting around a table in a pub together or, you know, just trying to just do one more song together or any, anything musically, whether it's like a one-off performance or just, you know, trying to put together anything again? Or is that just done? Uh, there's no mention of it <laughs> from the others. I mean, what with, I mean, the internet affords you to work together remotely anyway, doesn't it? You right. Know, that, but you're all in the same town. <laughs> yeah. Like, like that's the thing that sort of blows my mind is that you're, <laughs> you're, you're all back there, but you're in your little bungalows or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's a good point. Yeah, we're not so far away, are we? But you know, we're English. We're buttoned up. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't foresee it. No, that's not to say it won't happen, but I don't foresee it. Yeah. Would you Would you want it to happen, or is it just too too much time has passed? Uh don't know. Just the way we are, I think. All those old feelings. Oh yes, that's why. That's what I didn't like about you, wasn't it? <laughs> All these kind of feelings come back. You think, oh no, not the old order again. No way. No. I bet so, you guys. I can bet you guys have enough songs by now, and probably could come up with more. Maybe, maybe, but I don't know. I don't know whether the inclination and the push to do it is there. You know. Um, don't know. I don't know. You'd have to ask some of the others whether they would be interested, but I don't know. My guess is that it won't happen, and I'm not sure whether I have the inclination myself. Right. Are you, are the sort of the more hard feelings gone at least? Like, are you guys not mad at each other anymore? Yeah, I think that's subsided and all that nonsense over the money. I think that's dissipated, and you know, Andy and I talk quite a bit, probably more so than the others, you know, and. Uh, Mainly about kind of stuff that, you know, oh, yeah, remember that off the TV? Yes, I remember that, you know, all this kind of old stuff. And, uh, yeah, old feelings, old jokes, you know, uh, mm. they're still there. And uh, I'll be unlikely to go away. Do you have a but, sense also of just like kind of how much your work is appreciated at this point? Because certainly, you know, I mean, b between the reissues and just the fact that you know, these songs exist and people still listen to them. I mean, you're a band that's held up. Um, and I wonder how much of a sense of that you have. 
I think we've become more appreciated in the last 10 years than, than whatever we thought, you know. And I do think of the others in my quiet moments, you know, more than they think. Well, thank you so much. This has been such a treat for me. I really appreciate it. And you, Mark. Yeah, thanks very much for having me. That's it for episode 119 of Carol Pop. Thanks again to Colin Molding for being such a gracious, illuminating guest. And of course, for all the great music. He makes any day a big day. Go to BurningShed.com to order Molding's CD single, The Hardest Battle, and a signed copy of the TCNI EP, Great Aspirations, which Molding recorded with Terry Chambers. Burning Shed carries the latest XTC re-releases as well. Carol Pop is produced by Chris Swake, who should be king for a day, because he's one of the millions. We encourage you to support Carol Pop so we can keep this podcast free and sustainable. Please give whatever you'd like on carolpop.com. We appreciate you all. I'm Mark Carroll. Please follow Carol Pop on Twitter, X, and Instagram at Carol Popcast. You can follow me as well at Mark Carroll at M-A-R-K-C-A-R-O. Please share this episode, subscribe, tell your friends, and tune in again next week for another Carol Pop conversation. Thanks. Thanks.